Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue the season of Advent as we await the birth of the Christ child. When most kings go off to battle, King David decided to take a nap. When leaders fail, everyone suffers. Join us for the message, Harlots in the Holy Family, Bathsheba. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, when most kings go off to battle, King David decided to take a nap. When leaders fail, everyone suffers. So stay tuned for our message, Harlots in the Holy Family, Bathsheba. This morning's first scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3a, 5 through 6, and 16. Listen now to the word of God. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. It may not sound like it, but this opening genealogy in Matthew is a subtle but revolutionary political statement. The bottom line is the affirmation that Jesus is king, not Caesar, and certainly not Herod. Matthew is the gospel, if you recall, where the wise men go to the court of King Herod the Great and inquire where they can find this newborn king of the Jews. Well, since Herod considers himself the king of the Jews, this was a very disconcerting request. Herod ends up feeling so threatened that he has all the male children of Bethlehem, age two or younger, slaughtered. King Herod will not tolerate any other claim to his throne. He is the king of the Jews, set there by Caesar himself. But here comes Matthew and all the other gospel writers, and they go out of their way to make sure that we are aware that Jesus is a descendant of King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. And any descendant of David through the royal line would have a legitimate claim to be heir to the throne. The very first verse of Matthew's gospel tells us three very important things. An account of of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus is this long-awaited for Jewish Messiah, a descendant of David and thus an heir to the Jewish throne, and a son of Abraham, which places him firmly within the line of Jewish history. Jesus is Lord and King, not Herod and not Caesar. But then we find this very interesting turn in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Matthew makes it clear in his next chapter that Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Jesus is clearly not Joseph's biological child. And if that is the case, then it's really Joseph's Joseph's genealogy 
that we have been exploring this whole time, not Jesus's. From a modern perspective, we would think that in this case it would really be Mary's genealogy then that was pertinent. It would be Mary's genealogy that would be relevant in determining if Jesus was truly a son of David or really even a son of Abraham. But as we have seen, at least three of the four women that are listed there in Matthew's genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, were not Israelites or Jews. So maybe there's more than just bloodlines that determines who is one of God's people and who is a member of the nation of Israel. At the end of chapter 1, Matthew tells us that it is Joseph who christens Jesus. And this is significant because in this society, if a man names a baby, that means that this man is acknowledging paternity or is legally adopting the child. So Matthew wants to make it clear that Joseph is legally adopting Jesus. And as the legal son of Joseph, that makes Jesus a legal heir to the throne. So in a sense, this genealogy is not a list necessarily of Jesus' biological ancestors, but his spiritual ancestors. And it is through this spiritual legacy that Jesus comes to us as Messiah. It's also a very strong message to us that adoption is part of God's intention to make us family. Adoption is just as real of a way to make family as genetics. But who is this great King David, who is part of this lineage of Joseph and Jesus? What kind of man is he? And who is this wife of Uriah, who's the mother of another great king, Solomon? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Several decades ago, starting in the 70s, some young clergy began to question the way worship had always been done. Since more and more the population could not be considered Christian in really any meaningful sense of the word, then they could no longer be expected to be able to sit through a traditional worship service and find any meaning in it. So these young clergy began to experiment with what came to be called seeker-sensitive worship services. And these services were designed to be evangelistic outreach to seekers, that is, the unchurched. And so gone were all the old hymns, the organs, the stained glass, the liturgy, because that's not going to mean anything to the non-Christian. Instead, there would be a band who played contemporary music, stadium seating instead of pews, and no overt religious symbolisms. No crosses, no pyramids, no banners. This is the beginning of what came to be known as contemporary worship. And no one did this better than Pastor Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Community Church in suburban Chicago. The church started in 1975 with 20 individuals who were determined to do church differently. A year later, they numbered 1,000 members. They eventually grew to have 25,000 members. Willow Creek was so successful 
that they started the Willow Creek Association and the Global Leadership Summit. Pastors and church staff came from around the world to learn the secrets of Willow Creek, and indeed, indeed many churches truly benefited from this training. The idea of contemporary worship service spread through American Protestantism, and today many churches will have multiple worship services in order to accommodate different tastes and preferences. The lead pastor, Bill Hybels, became an icon in the church growth movement and has written 50 books, about 50 books. His two most well-known are Becoming a Contagious Christian and Too Busy Not to Pray. I even have one of his leadership books in my library, in my office. Moreover, even though he espoused a conservative evangelical theology, Hybels championed the cause of women's equal partnership and leadership in the church. He made sure that women were represented on their board of elders, kind of like our leadership board, and even hired female associate pastors. After 40 years, over 40 years, as the lead pastor of Willow Creek and a lifetime of success, Hybels was all set to retire in 2018. When there began to emerge in the press disturbing stories about Heibel's treatment of some of the female staff and members. And the stories went back many years, and it ends up that the Board of Elders had been aware of those stories for at least the past four years. The stories involved inappropriate comments and unwanted touching. He often scheduled one-on-one -on -one meetings with female staffers in his hotel room or at his house when his wife was out of town. And he would often share with these women how unhappy he was in his marriage. And he even coerced one female staff member to have sex with him. When the Board of Elders was initially confronted with these allegations, their first response was to circle the wagons and defend Hybels. Because they just could not believe that their friend and leader could be capable of such behavior. After all, this was a man who had written books entitled who you are when no one's looking. Authenticity, being honest with God and others. And marriage, building real intimacy. Hybels himself categorically denied any wrongdoing and accused the women of colluding together to discredit him right before his retirement. And eventually Hybels was forced to retire early. And soon thereafter, the two co-pastors, one of them a woman, who had been selected to succeed him, they also resigned, and then the entire board of elders resigned. The board issued apologies to all the women involved because they had initially not believed their accusations against Hybels. So after a long, successful career, Hybels will now be associated with scandal. His reputation and his credibility is now lost forever. And this is really truly a shame because he and his ministry resulted in thousands of people, maybe even tens of thousands of people, coming to know Christ and professing the Christian faith. It makes me wonder how many of those people will now be too disillusioned to continue. How many will quietly slip away and never give church another chance? When leaders fail and fall, it has repercussions that go far beyond the immediate context because a leader's actions hurt not only him or herself, but the leader hurts their own family, 
the people they work with, and all the people that are affected by this organization. The failure of a leader becomes like an infection that spreads throughout the body, poisoning one organ after another. These types of failures, however, they've been around since human society began. 3,000 years ago, a scandal almost brought down an entire kingdom. It was a scandal so notorious that we still talk about it today. David and Bathsheba. David would become the most revered king in Israelite history. He was chosen by God, anointed by the prophet Samuel, and took the throne after his father-in-law, King Saul, was killed in battle. After his coronation, the prophet Nathan came to David with this word from the Lord. God was going to establish David's throne in David's house, and one of his descendants would always occupy the throne of Israel from this time forth and forevermore. This was a sacred covenant that the Lord was establishing with David in perpetuity. David himself would go on to reign for over 40 years. But a lot can happen in 40 years. David had initially just dove right into the job of being king. He captured the city of Jerusalem and made it the political capital of the now combined kingdoms of Israel and Judah. He brought the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle there into Jerusalem, establishing then Jerusalem as also the religious capital. He went to war and he subdued all of Israel's enemies. And then he got bored. Second Samuel chapter 11 begins with this verse. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. But David remained in Jerusalem. If it was the time when kings go off to war, why is David still in Jerusalem while his army is fighting? Now granted, his general Moab was a highly effective military leader. But most would say that David should have been with his own army. But instead, he was taking a nap. and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. If the weather is warm, it's typical of the ancient Israelites and even modern uh, Israelis and Palestinians to sleep or, or, or even um, just reside there on the roof. When David woke from his nap, he would have had a commanding view of the entire city before him. And looking out over the city, he spied a woman bathing. She was doing the rite of purification that the law required uh, of all women at the end of their menstrual cycle. She was beautiful, he was king, and he could take whatever he wanted. So he sent some messengers to go fetch her, and then he took her. And even though they're referred to as messengers, the Hebrew makes it very clear that the messengers just came and took her. The text gives us zero indication 
of what Bathsheba said or felt? Did she go willingly? Did she protest? Did those messengers have to carry her to the palace because she was kicking and screaming the entire way there? When she was brought before the king, what did she do or say? Did she submit? Did she try to fight them off? Even if Bathsheba did submit, by today's standard, she was incapable of giving what we now call informed consent because of the massive power deferential between them. So in other words, David raped her. Over the centuries, many commentators have tried to soften what David did. Uh, Bathsheba seduced the king. That's why she was bathing in full view of the king's palace. But because the palace was elevated, David was able to look into the inner courtyards of all the houses around him, and the inner courtyards is where you were supposed to take a bath in an ancient home. David and Bathsheba were in love. Well, the text doesn't record anything remotely resembling romance. David didn't even know who she was. All he knew is what his servants told him. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, Uriah must have been a bad husband, perhaps even abusive, and David was rescuing her from a bad marriage. But the picture we get from the story shows Uriah to be an honorable man. After finding out Bathsheba was pregnant, David tried to fool Uriah into thinking it was his child. David called Uriah from the battlefield to ask for a report about how the army was doing. David assumed that Uriah would go down and stay in his own house while he was in Jerusalem. And if Uriah was to go to his own house and then have sex with his wife, then everyone, including Uriah, would believe that the child was his. But Uriah stayed with the guard and never went down to his own house. He didn't feel it was right for him to enjoy the comforts of home while the rest of the army was out in the fields. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. As we so often see, the cover-up is often worse than the crime. Now David's already guilty of adultery and rape, and now he's going to add murder to cover up his misdeeds. He tells his general Joab to put Uriah in the worst of the fighting, really a foolhardy attack, and then to deliberately pull back so that Uriah is struck down by the enemy. Joab, the ever-loyal general who often did David's dirty work, complied by ordering this, again, foolhardy attack that was bound to leave several Israelites killed. 
and Uriah was to lead the charge. Uriah was struck down, but several other Israelite soldiers also lost their lives in David's cover-up scheme. When Bathsheba heard that her husband had died, she went through the traditional seven-day mourning ritual. Then David sent for her and made her one of his wives. As they say, her husband wasn't even cold in the grave. As David's wife, everyone would assume that he impregnated her after their marriage. And again, we have no idea what Bathsheba thought or said about all of this. Did she truly and deeply mourn for Uriah? Was she relieved to be freed from Uriah? Did she have any desire to become one of David's wives? We just don't know. But from David's perspective, everything had worked out. The cover-up had been successful, but there's just one thing that David forgot. God was a witness to all that had taken place. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. On the seventh day, the child died. The prophet Nathan came to David and told him a story. And the king often acted as a judge, so David probably assumed that Nathan was actually bringing him the details of an actual case. After hearing the story of a rich man who slaughtered a poor man's pet and ate it for dinner, David pronounced his own judgment. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then in one of the most dramatic scenes in all the Bible, Nathan roars back, you are the man. Speaking through Nathan, the Lord confronts David, basically saying, I anointed you king. 
I saved you from Saul. I gave you a house. I gave you everything your heart desired and would have been willing to give you even more. But instead, you took Uriah's wife and then had him killed by the sword. And as a result, the sword will never leave your house. But the Lord was merciful. David had pronounced a death sentence on the man who stole the lamb, but God would let David live. But even with grace, we're all burdened by the consequences of our sin, and the wife of Bathsheba that Bathsheba carried would not survive. Now, <clears throat> of course, to us, to our modern ears, this sounds very unjust. Why should the child die because of the sins of the father? And the Bible wrestles with this question, and I can tell you the Bible offers no easy answers to this. The ancient Israelites assumed that God was the direct cause of everything that happened, so if the child died, then it must have been the will of God. In fact, we even find this verse in the Ten Commandments. I, am the, Lord, I the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me. But other parts of the Bible offer different answers. So I think what we can say is this. When parents sin, it is often the children who pay for it, even though they are innocent. And when kings and leaders sin, it's often the people who pay for it, even though they are innocent. After Nathan's rebuke, David says something simple and amazing. I have sinned against the Lord. No denials, no excuses, no justifications. He simply confesses and repents. If only we could all do that when we are confronted with our sin. Because we're human, we're going to sin. But we could save ourselves so much additional heartache if we could just simply say, I have sinned against the Lord. And think about that the next time any kind of a leader or a public personality, a celebrity or a politician or an athlete or a clergy person, denies and denies and denies, only to have those falsehoods later uncovered. And I often think, if the person had just confessed when they were first confronted, they might have been able to save, uh, be able to regain the, the public's trust and save their career, maybe even save their reputation. We need to remember that all of us are leaders somewhere even it's just to our own children and grandchildren. And they're looking to us for moral guidance, and they will be influenced by our example, and they will suffer if we betray that trust. But we are sinners, so it's inevitable that we will eventually betray that trust to some degree or another. And while we may still have to suffer the consequences of our actions, God always does forgive the repentant sinner. David was a rapist, an adulterer, and a murderer. Yet God had made a covenant, and the Lord kept the covenant that God had made with David. David consoled his wife Bathsheba and went to her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. This is the word of God for the people of God. David now has become a changed man. And he goes now to console Bathsheba because now she has finally become to him a real person 
not just the object of his lust. So a child is born and a son is given and David's house will continue. We never do get to hear any of Bathsheba's thoughts or feelings throughout this particular story. And that makes Bathsheba's story very different from the other stories that we've explored during the sermon series of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. But later, after her son Solomon becomes king, Bathsheba is given the title of queen mother, which would have been a very powerful position within the royal court. And so we do know that she does eventually find her voice and is able to exercise a great deal of agency over her own life. But in the meantime, God keeps covenant with us. And that's true whether we're speaking of the Lord's covenant with David or with Israel or with all of us through the body and blood of Christ. We sin and betray, God restores and forgives. So may we be leaders and agents of God's forgiveness and restoration. Amen. And now you you stand as you are able to receive the benediction. May the God of love make you holy and the power of the Spirit sustain you until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prepare the way of the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue to celebrate the season of Christmas and the coming of the Christ child. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.